Good morning. Before we, uh, there we go. Before we uh, turn our full attention to the word, I want to call your attention to something that's coming up at Faith that is, um, it's a pretty excellent opportunity. I'm pretty excited that we're, we're able to do this again, but we need to start getting ready now. Uh, the, the date will, will sound far away, but it, things come fast, uh, especially this time of year. Um, but on Friday, December 2nd, Faith is going to host what's called a respite night. Uh, and so this is an evening where we invite anyone from either our church community or the Manhattan community at large, anyone who is involved in, in foster care or, or adoption, uh, to bring their kids to our church at 6 o'clock. And we will uh, have a great time with them, play with them, have activities. It'll be really uh, just a really sweet night of having a lot of fun with all these great kids uh, but the key is that while we're doing, our volunteers are doing that child care, the parents and caretakers get the night off. Um, so they can go out and get dinner or do Christmas shopping or take a nap. Whatever it is they feel like is most life-giving to them and for those three hours, it's up to them. And uh, our volunteers will be here having a great time with their kids and, and playing and doing awesome things. To pull the respite night off, however, we have to have lots and lots and lots of volunteers. Um, some of the kids will get a volunteer assigned directly to them to be their buddy all night. We'll have rooms that are going to be filled with fun activities that, uh, that will need people to be able to run. We'll have jobs that require people to run here, there, and everywhere all over the building. Uh, so if serving in this way, if, if helping these families out sounds like something that you'd be interested in, we'd love for you to sign up and consider have you consider signing up soon. Um, as you leave today, there's, a, there's a, a table in the foyer with a sign for the respite night. Uh, Amanda Epperson, our, our intern that's handling some of our, uh, our foster care ministry stuff and adoption ministry stuff, will be out there and she can tell you all about it. Um, she's got a, a code you can scan to, to get signed up. It'll also be in Faith Weekly. Uh, it'll be, there'll be places to, to sign up on Church Center. Um, and of course, you can grab the connection card, fill that out, and just write Respite Night on there if you want, and uh, put that in the offering box in the back, and we'll be sure to contact you next week. Basically, if you want to volunteer, we will find you. Uh, but you can help us by, by, by doing, one of those, uh, doing one of those ways. If you're a family that has either a foster care placement or, is, or is, uh, has adopted a child, uh, hold on tight. Uh, your, your chance to register for that event will be coming up here in a few weeks. Uh, but for right now, we're just looking for volunteers. So please consider um, serving these families in this way. They're doing incredible work, but they deserve uh, some time off. They, des- they deserve a night uh, where, where we watch their kids and they go out and kind of rest and relax and recharge. So please uh, consider doing that and get signed up soon um, to serve on that December 2nd. Um, well, as we turn our attention to the word this morning I, and we continue our series on wisdom, continue to look at the idea of wisdom and what that means for us and looking at scripture, I want to begin by asking you all to consider the question, what does the life of a wise person look like? What does the life of a wise person look like? What is it about someone who, when you look at them and you consider kind of who they are and what they do and how they make decisions, maybe even the way they appear, what is it about them? Like you look at them and you're like, that person is wise. That person's got it all together. They just, they just understand so much more than I do about the way the world, uh, about the way the world works. Perhaps a wise person is someone who always seems to be able to, like, to make good decisions, make the right decisions, so much so that their life is full of like, success and abundance and, and blessing. The Collins English Dictionary has as its part of, of the definition of wisdom, it says, a wise person is able to use their experience and knowledge in order to make sensible decisions and judgments. So maybe a big part of being wise and being a wise person is, is the measure of, of like your sound judgment and how you bring all those experiences together to, to inform what you're doing. 
Out of curiosity, I googled the question, what's a wise person look like this week? And, uh, and this guy popped up. It was the first image, first image on Google. On, um, and for those of you who don't know, this, this fine-looking gentleman is Sir Ian McKellen uh, in his role as Gandalf, uh, Gandalf the Grey in Peter Jackson's adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. And uh, I don't know if his being the first image it says more about our culture's perception of, of wisdom or about how often I've been Googling plot summaries of the Silmarillion as I've watched The Rings of Power, which is the new Lord of the Rings series that Amazon's got going. Um, but nevertheless, whether we're looking at this, this definition that's kind of super comforting and encouraging or, or looking at this kindly old wizard, both of these kind of fit well with the world's understanding of wisdom. Like, like this is how the world kind of looks out and looks for who is wise. But as Christians, we believe that wisdom must be characterized by something far greater than, than our experiences and, and far stronger than even, even the best of our favorite fictional, uh, fictional wizards. Over the past few weeks, we have spent time in the books of Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes and Daniel, and in every single one of those books, we were reminded of the truth that the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and that true wisdom is ultimately about having that right relationship with God, right? having a right relationship with and a reverent attitude toward, uh, uh, reverent attitude toward God. There it is. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's about understanding who God is and, and moving closer in and closer toward that truth and, and thinking about him rightly and understanding what, he, what, he, what he's doing and what he believes about you. And, and with all of this in mind, I want to take some time this morning to consider this question, what does the life of a wise person look like, uh, by examining the biblical account of a man named Joseph. His story is found in Genesis 37 through 50 and has a great deal to say, a great deal to teach us about the idea of wisdom. And, and there are examples both of, of very, very wise people and very foolish people, and Joseph will actually end up being a little bit of both. Uh, there are many insights that we can gain from Joseph's story, but today I want to focus on three that I think will help us kind of fill out this picture of what does is, what is a wise person's life look like? What, what are we looking for in that? So as we go through these chapters, I think we'll see that a life that lacks wisdom, so the life of someone who doesn't have wisdom, it creates disaster, right? A life that lacks wisdom creates disaster. A life committed to wisdom produces perseverance, and a life full of wisdom makes it possible to trust the plans of God. A life full of wisdom makes it possible to trust the plans of God. So that's what we're going to be moving toward today. You would never know, after opening up your Bible and reading the beginning of Joseph's story in, in chapter 37, that you're being introduced to, to someone who's widely regarded as one of the wisest people in, in all of Scripture. Joseph's story uh, gets off to a little bit of a rough start. In, uh, in Genesis 37, in verse 2, we, start learn, we, we get introduced to Joseph for the first time, and this is what it says. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bala and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made him an ornate robe. When his brothers saw that his father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So Joseph is first introduced as this 17-year-old tattletale and, and snitch, 
right? That we get told that in verse 2 that Joseph brings back this false report to his father Jacob. And, and Jacob is also Israel in, in this opening piece. It's the, it's the same guy. Joseph brings back a false report, a bad report. And that phrase, bad report from the Hebrew, uh, has this connotation, has the meaning behind it of this report is like slanted a little bit. It's a little bit slanderous. It's not that Joseph is lying. It's more that he's definitely putting the details together in the way that makes him look the best and his brothers look the worst. Right, he, he's basically tattling to score brownie points with, it, with his dad. And uh, how many of you are, are siblings out here? Okay, got a good number. How many of you are youngest siblings like me? All right, so you know this play. You've run this before. You've done this. You understand how this works. And, uh, and you understand the benefits of it. Like the short-term benefits can often be really, really great. But the long-term benefits and the wedge that it drives between you and your siblings and the, and the problems it creates for your family, it never turns out well. And we'll see that being true for Joseph and his family as well. So Jacob, uh, Joseph's father, who if you look back at Jacob's life, he has a long list of issues all on his own. Uh, But Jacob, Joseph's father, apparently loved Joseph more than any of his other brothers, which is not a great start. And uh, he made his favoritism obvious by giving Joseph this ornate robe. All right, and so whether this was just a really, really nice garment that he gives to Joseph, or if it's a technicolor dream coat, whatever this ends up being, it only makes matters worse. To the point where scripture tells us when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word about him. So it was already pretty bad. And then it gets much, much worse. As we go on in chapter 37, Joseph brings forward some information that that kind of makes everybody continuing to be a little bit uh, uncomfortable. Going back to verse five, it says, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? And will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of this dream uh, and what he had said. So Joseph tells his brothers all about this dream that seems to indicate that one day uh, he's going to be in charge. He's going to be literally lording over them. They'll bow down to him. And then he actually has a second dream, and he tells it to them again. And he tells it to his dad, and they're all kind of really upset and made uncomfortable by this. And it drives a further wedge. It drives his brothers to hate him even more. All right, and as we're watching all this, it also doesn't really build up our estimation of Joseph's character as we're, as we're reading the story. As one commentator noted, Joseph might be introduced as like morally okay, like we don't see him do anything deeply evil here, but he's also immature. He's tattletaling, he's bragging, he's a spoiled brat at this point in his story. And Joseph's poor character eventually catches up with him. The rest of Genesis 37 goes on to tell us that one day his Jacob calls him over and says, I want you to go out into the fields and find your brothers and bring me a report of them because that worked so well the first time around. And so, so Joseph goes out and scripture actually tells us that he has the audacity and the insensitivity to wear the robe his father had given him as he's going out to find his brothers. So they obviously see him from a long way off and uh, they decide, you know what, we've had it, we're done. And they determine that they're going to jump him. They're going to beat him up. They strip him of the robe. They throw him in a cistern, which is like a dried out well in the wilderness. And, uh, and they discuss killing him. That, that's on the table. They, they discuss whether or not they want to kill him. But instead, they end up deciding, we're going to sell our brother into slavery. So they sell him off to some passing uh, slave traders. And they take the robe. And they dip it in goat's blood. They go back to Jacob. And they say, your favorite son got mauled in the, wilder- in the wilderness by, by wild animals. He's dead. 
And Jacob uh, is devastated by this news. And, and the negative impact of this lie and this whole event, it ends up uh, breaking this family, hurting this family for decades to come. But here's what I want you to notice at the beginning of Joseph's story. There is a complete and utter lack of wisdom from everyone involved. No one in this story seems particularly close to or even interested in being close to God. In fact, God isn't even mentioned in chapter 37. No prayers are offered, no counsel is sought for the interpretation of Joseph's dream, and no one has anything even remotely close to like compassion or consideration or the kind of things we would hope to see in the community of those who, who follow God. And it is this total lack of wisdom that creates disaster. It destroys this family. The fear of the Lord is nowhere to be seen in Genesis 37, and the consequences of that absence are devastating. Now, in just a little bit, we'll see how things turn around for Joseph. There's even an opportunity for him and his family to, to come together again. But right here at the beginning of the story, we, we really need to consider what we're seeing and, and, and just how bad things are for, for Joseph and his, and his brothers. It is tragically easy to, uh, to pull up the book of Proverbs and just, you could literally just open it up and start reading along and start ticking off all of the ways Joseph and his brothers and his father are getting wisdom wrong, that they're, they're just abandoning the call to be wise. If you were to go to chapter 11, looking at even, even at just verses two and three, it says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. And so, which parts of verses 2 and 3 sound like this family? Right? It's, it's, it's the negative parts. It's the bad parts. It's the parts that's saying, when you're not wise, when you're not humble, when you abandon those things, life goes wrong. Their pride leads them to disgrace. Their unfaithfulness and duplicity toward one another, and perhaps even toward God, creates destruction in their lives because a lack of wisdom destroys the things around us. We ignore our need for a good relationship with God at our own peril. Because make no mistake, there's the difference between you and me and Joseph and his brothers and his family. It's not all that large. We could just as easily, very quickly blow up our lives, just as we see happen here with Joseph and his brothers. Now, I want to be sure that you hear me clearly. What I'm not saying is that every disaster in your life is caused by a lack of wisdom. Right? That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not that every disaster in our life is caused by a lack of wisdom. We saw that a few weeks ago when we looked at the book of Job. That's, that's not what happens here. But the Bible does tell us that when we are experiencing life crashing down around us, when we have things going on that are hard and, and, and make us feel isolated, make things difficult, that it's good to take a step back and take a moment and honestly ask ourselves what's going on and maybe even ask ourselves these questions. The first being, is what I am experiencing is what am I experiencing right now? Is it a result of my lacking wisdom? And just being honest in your evaluation and your answer. Is what I'm experiencing a result of my lacking wisdom? Am I in the situation I am in right now because I have failed to fear the Lord? Because I have failed to pursue a right relationship with him. I have failed to think about him rightly. I have failed to think about him at all. Is what, is what I'm experiencing a result of, of my failed, uh, of having failed fearing the Lord? And then very simply, what is my relationship with God like today? And just coming up with a, an honest evaluation, an answer to that question. An honest assessment like this could be the difference between creating waves of disaster in our own life and the life of the people around us, or identifying our need to draw close to God and seek his ways. 
Because when we do that, when we draw close to, close to the Lord, things tend to work out differently. It may take time. It's not that it's an instant fix, but ultimately a life of wisdom derived from our fear of the Lord will produce what we truly want and what we truly need. And that is a better connected life to God. So the next time we catch up with Joseph, uh, he's, he's been taken to Egypt. He was taken as a slave and he was sold to a man named Potiphar. And we learned that Potiphar is the, uh, the captain of uh, of Pharaoh's, of Pharaoh's guard, so Pharaoh's the king over Egypt. Joseph's taken to, to Egypt, sold to Potiphar, and, and Potiphar puts Joseph in his house and says, do some work, and, and it turns out things start going really well. Um, things kind of take a, a positive turn. In fact, in, 39, in chapter 39, when it uh, describes what's going on in Joseph's life, it says this. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in his house and in the field. So Joseph seemingly starts maturing before our eyes, right? We don't know what happened on this journey from, from where his brother sold him to where he finally gets, caught, or get, gets purchased by Potiphar. Uh, but something must have, must have kind of sparked or triggered because here we, we don't see like the favored son of Jacob back home. Here we see a man who's willing to enter into leadership and administration. He's got all these skills that all of a sudden start, start blossoming. And in Egypt... He, he makes the most of his circumstances, right? He doesn't just kind of throw up his hands or say this, you know, woe was me and, and, and be down on himself. He does what he can to, to go about his labor. He accepts his lot and he enjoys what he can as long as he can as a blessing from the Lord. So we see echoes, we see shadows of what we saw a few weeks ago when we were looking at Ecclesiastes, which encouraged us to, to not shy away from the fact that life is hard, but also embrace the good work that we can do as something that God blesses us with. Joseph's doing that right here in his circumstance in Egypt. And all things considered, it tells us things really start working out well for him. And then along comes Potiphar's wife. And we don't learn very much about Potiphar's wife, but the one fact that we do know is that she became lustfully smitten with Joseph, with Joseph to the point where she repeatedly, after time and time again, kept trying to get him to come to bed with her, kept inviting Joseph to sleep with her. And Joseph refuses her every time, but in verses 8 through 10, we learn the reason he's so committed to saying no, and it's crucial that we look there and see what motivates Joseph to, to say no and to turn away Potiphar's wife. So in verse 8, it says, But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or to even be uh, alone with her. And so Joseph grounds his refusal not to sleep with Potiphar's wife. He grounds this, this, this commitment on one very important truth, so that he understands it would be a wicked thing to do because it would be a sin against God. Joseph's commitment to, the obedience, to, to his obedience to God was his motivation. 
His fear of the Lord, his, his commitment to maintaining a right relationship with God and a reverent attitude toward God, it kept him clear of the dangers of an adulterous woman, which is one of the, the clearest warnings that if you go back and read through the book of Proverbs, that warning of stay away from the adulterous woman, that's all over the place. So again, we see Joseph embracing this idea of biblical wisdom as his life plays out. No matter how hard she tried, she could not get Joseph to compromise his faith or abandon his wisdom. And his commitment to wisdom produced the kind of perseverance necessary to flee from sin and stay on a righteous path. That perseverance was then put to an even greater test. After yet another failed attempt to get Joseph to come to bed with her, uh, Potiphar's wife turns on Joseph and ends up accusing him of, of sexual assault. So Potiphar hears about this, and he takes Joseph, and he throws him into prison, and, uh, and that could have been the end of Joseph's story. He could have thrown up his hands and said, well, that's it. I'm in jail. There's nothing left. I'll just sit here until I die. Uh, but we see, once again, that Joseph, as he enters this new situation, makes the most of his circumstances, and as we move through the rest of, of Genesis 39, we find out that the prison warden, so impressed by Joseph, ends up giving him responsibilities and putting him in charge of the prison. By the time we get to the end of, of this section of the story, it says once again, the Lord was with Joseph and he gave him success in whatever he did. Thanks to this perseverance that was instilled in him by his wisdom and his fear of the Lord, in chapters 40 through 41, you'll see Joseph able to maintain, uh, kind of maintain his status, maintain his faith, continue to work on his wisdom, even though he's basically forgotten in prison. He just puts his head down and does his work and, and continues along his way. But eventually, Joseph is given the opportunity to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And as he does so, he gives Pharaoh this interpretation, which helps him understand that there is going to be coming seven years of blessing, followed by seven years of famine, and that Pharaoh needs to do certain things to get ready. In response to, to Joseph's ability to help him see what's coming, Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh says of Joseph, he, he turns to his court and he says of Joseph in, in chapter 41, uh, starting at verse 39, it says, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all of this known to you, there is no one so discerning or wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. We often think about wisdom in its relationship to blessing, right? And we want that equation to basically be one-to-one. -one. I am this wise, and so I deserve this much, this much blessing. And while sometimes it does feel like that life works out that way, just as many times it, it doesn't. And that's not the lesson that the Bible teaches is the way the world's going to work. We still live in a world that is full of sin, and to be blunt, a world that is cruel and unfair. Sin produces that kind of a world. So fearing the Lord does not always put you on the best terms with the people around you. They're not always going to understand the decisions that you make or the things that you do. And in fact, they may even be angered by what appears to them to be foolishness. But it is always better to seem a fool to the world while walking on the right path that God has laid out before you. So we look for the wisdom of God to not only build up our blessings, which will happen from time to time, but we also look for it to build up our perseverance as well. We take the counsel of Proverbs 4 seriously. In Proverbs 4, it says, get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Though it cost you all you have, get understanding. The wisdom of the Lord is worth the cost. 
right? And the cost may very well be great. So before you assume that you're wise because life seems to be going pretty well, you seem to have made some pretty good decisions, you've got all these blessings around you, take a moment to to step back and consider these questions. Is your relationship with God dependent on his blessings, dependent on all these things you seem to have? Or is its foundation God himself? Are you wise or do you believe yourself to be wise because for now things seem to be going well? Or are you wise because no matter what, you know that God is with you and that you are with God? What we need, to, what we need to, to assess, what we need to look at is what actually helps us build our understanding of what is wisdom and how is it playing out in my life. Because oftentimes we only associate it with those good things and when things go wrong, we're either mad at God or mad at ourselves and we don't, we don't realize what's happening. But a life committed to wisdom per, also produces the, the perseverance necessary to remain in right relationship with God no matter what. And ultimately, that perseverance will lead to the incredible gift of being able to better understand and trust the plans of God. The next phase of Joseph's story is really, is really quite amazing. It's quite beautiful, and we don't have time to go through each, each, uh, each chapter of it, but through uh, chapters 42 and 49 of Genesis, Joseph rises to power, right, and he becomes second only to Pharaoh, and he does indeed prepare the land of Egypt for the famine, and, and he ends up helping Egypt through that time and, and accumulates money and power and wealth. He gets a family. He has two kids. Things go well for Joseph. And then along comes an, a moment, an opportunity, where he's once again confronted by his family. He encounters his brothers again. He has a chance to, to reconnect with them. And what ends up happening, how, how the narrative plays out, is that Joseph actually reconciles with his brothers. He gets reunited with his father, and, and it really is kind of a happy ending to the story of Joseph being with his family once again and living to that good old age of, of 110. But there's one more aspect of Joseph's story that we need to be sure that we take a look at because it's, it's kind of the capstone of his understandings of wisdom. After Jacob dies, uh, Joseph's brothers uh, get a little worried. They kind of come together and they're like, what if, uh, what if Joseph's still mad about that whole remember when we beat you up and sold you into slavery thing? Um, and now that our dad's gone, now that Jacob's gone, what if like, he's just been waiting till this point and now he's going to bring the hammer down? Now vengeance is coming. And it scares them so much that they go to Jacob and they throw themselves at his feet. They bow down to him and they say, we are your servants. We'll do anything. Just don't punish us. Don't seek vengeance for the harm that we once did to you. Joseph's response is, is really one of the greatest statements of, of wisdom and forgiveness in all of Scripture. In chapter 50, verse 19, it says, But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and spoke kindly to them. You intended to harm me. God intended it for good. Look at all that's being done. Look, look at all that's been done. Look at all these lives that have been saved. You don't need to be afraid because the plan that God had was greater and more awesome than anything we could have imagined. A life full of wisdom makes it possible to trust that plan of God. A life full of wisdom makes it possible to to see even just a little bit and celebrate and trust the plans of God. So much of what we do, so much of what we do, both uh, collectively as the human race and individually in, in our everyday relationships together, it's plagued by this motivation to harm one another. 
to get ahead, to win at any cost, to control as many outcomes as possible. Even if it means the collateral damage is going to end up hurting people around us, that's just, that's just the cost of doing business in life. So much of the world is consumed with the, with the idea of power, the idols of power and control and desire. We know that there are people out there that want to harm us. And if we're honest with ourselves, we also know that from time to time, we are the people that seek to harm others as well. The beauty, the, the incredible thing about God's sovereignty is that our intentions, whether good or evil, cannot stop his plan for redemption. Our intentions, whether good or evil, cannot stop God's plan for reconciliation or salvation. If we are wise, we can look at the world around us and acknowledge that it is indeed full of pain and full of sorrow and still say what God intends to do is good and it will be accomplished. In fact, we can look at that and say it has already been accomplished. Because there is no greater example of the wholehearted belief in the statement, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. No one has ever embodied that better than Jesus Christ on the cross. Looking out at a world absolutely determined to cause him harm. And yet knowing that every moment of pain and anguish and innocent, unjust suffering that he experienced was going to be radically transformed into something good. For the eternal saving of many lives through the power of his resurrection. I can't make it make perfect sense. I can't make this make perfect sense. But what I can say is that the truth is the answer to the question, what does a wise person look like? It's not a magical, powerful being. What a wise person looks like is Christ on the cross. It's a king, suffering, hanging on the cross, dying so that you and I might live. A life full of wisdom, full of the closeness to and the deep longing that we need and we have for God, it's part of what gave Jesus the strength and the courage to do what he did for you and for me. A life full of wisdom makes it possible for us to trust the plans of God as surely as Jesus himself did on the road to Calvary while on the cross all the way through to the grave and his resurrection day. Wisdom makes it possible for the gospel to be accessible and alive and real. Fear of the Lord, rightly relating to and thinking about and understanding God, it allows us to celebrate and proclaim that all God intends to do is good that all that he accomplished in Christ is good and all that he will accomplish at Christ's return is good. So we need to ask ourselves this. Do we feel more like Joseph's brothers, afraid of, of the harm that's done to us, afraid of the harm that we may have done to others, so afraid that, that we, get, we, get, we freeze and we get stuck in this world? Or are you more like Joseph, willing to trust that no matter what harm comes your way, and to be honest, no matter what harm you need to repent from having done to others, that no matter what, God will work all things for the good of those who love him. That he's already done it, that he's already at work for the good of those who love him. I know this place, this world, is a hard place to live, but trust in the good plan of a good God. Take heart, because he has overcome the world. And may your wisdom fill you with the perseverance that you need to lead you to the place where you can trust, deeply trust in the plans of your very good God.
Would you all please pray with me? Our desire, Lord, is to trust you. And that requires vulnerability, that requires sacrifice, that requires us doing so without all the answers. But we can look to the life of Joseph and see that although all the answers are not always there, the goodness of God remains. And the confidence in that statement, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, so something miraculous might happen, is the very essence of the gospel. And so God, please help us embrace that truth, live that out both in our own lives and on display for others to see that no matter what harm might come our way, we believe in the goodness of God. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.